Hello and welcome to the Union News Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Union Juice Podcast, the UK's only all things union programme, produced for your digital download, delight and overall appreciation. In this episode, Victoria Jones of the FDA lifts the lid on what it's like to be a senior civil servant in the COVID crisis, and TUC national organiser Carl Roper on the truth behind the third successive year in the growth of union numbers. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. In this episode, Carl Roper, TUC National Organiser, on the truth behind a 200,000 growth in trade union membership over the last three years, plus surprising and welcome proposals from the Law Commission about employment tribunals. But first, let's turn to our featured guest, and that's Victoria Jones, National Officer at the FDA, the union for 18,000 senior civil servants and senior managers in the health service. The starting point for our discussion was the groundbreaking agreement that Victoria was closely involved in, in turning the civil service into a paragon of flexible working virtue. We discussed how things didn't quite go to plan and then the wrecking ball of COVID came along and how the union has responded to that particular challenge. Along the way, we paused to reflect that not all FDA members work in offices and that relations between senior civil servants and their political masters have not always been plain sailing. During the podcast, you'll hear a couple of bits of jargon that I'll just defuse now. The MOJ is the Ministry of Justice, and the SCS is the Senior Civil Service. Here's Victoria. Well, listeners, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce you to our guest for this episode of the Union Jews podcast, Victoria Jones, uh, National Officer at the FDA, the Senior Civil Servants Union. Uh, Victoria, very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Strange times indeed that we're in at the moment as we as we sit here on the first day after <laughs> Boris Johnson's revised statement about how lockdown will or won't be uh, re- relaxed. But I'd like to, to go further back if I could, uh, Victoria, because uh, I know what your area and your areas of expertise is about flexible working in the civil service. And the FDA secured a, a really landmark agreement about 18 months ago now in the civil service in which they committed to be a sort of paragon of flexible working virtue. And um, what, what were the main aspects of that, uh, that agreement? And why was it just such a, a breakthrough? So I, I think the, the civil service has always been a really positive example of flexible working. And um, they've been quite proactive in terms of encouraging staff to adopt flexible working practices where possible. Um, and I, I think the intention has always been there. Um, particularly when you think about the costs of civil service estates, particularly in London and in Whitehall, um, there's always been a move to get people out of those really expensive places and into remote working hubs. Um, and that's that's really where the conversations with the unions really started, was talking about those, those hubs um, that are going to be outside of London and outside of cities so that civil servants would be able to work remotely where they could. 
so our conversations with with the employers they started kind of at a local level so we obviously negotiate and, and bargain within different employers um, and then we started to get some feedback from members that actually you know the work that the civil service was doing in terms of flexible working it, it wasn't quite on 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 the level where we wanted it to be so um, that kind of encouraged us to have another another look and to think about what the next steps are for flexible working within the civil service so so i think there's always been a a, a sense of collaboration and it, it's been really helpful to be able to have those conversations but actually i think for us it was about taking a step outside of that and saying you know where are we now and let's have a really honest look at what flexible working looks like for the civil service mm, yeah it sounds it, it's sort of listening between the lines of what you you were saying it sounds it sounds like that if you if you like the heart was willing in terms of the employer but but it perhaps hadn't been thought through fully exactly what this would mean in practice in practice and i think that was probably what your joint work with the global institute for women's leadership found out when they reviewed the agreement at the end of last year last September I think it was what what were the sort of gaps if you like in the thinking or the practicalities that 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 revealed yeah I think you hit the nail on the head I think I think you're absolutely right that the intention was there but the practicalities just they just they just weren't we this piece of research came about because we engaged with our women's network and we said you know what are the the issues that you're passionate about and and what works for you and and members would come to us and say you know the civil service set out on a really good path towards flexible working and they were leading the way but actually the private sector is starting to overlap and is starting to push things forward and the civil service isn't as fast and as agile at adopting those things so the research we did i think there were a couple of key things that really that really came out around it and i think the biggest one for me was around career development and flexible working so your ability to um work flexibly but then also progress to the highest um echelons of the civil service is really limited so there's a question there and that's what our women's network were coming forward to to us and saying you know i'm a a fairly senior civil servant but actually if i want to break into the scs and work flexibly i can't see anyone else doing that there's no one there Mm. to show the way so i think that was one of the the biggest features for us aside from that i think there was something interesting around cultures and and the perception of people working flexibly and i think you get that everywhere actually you know if you've got childcare responsibilities and you've got to get your kids but you've got to leave at three o'clock obviously not at the moment there's a there's a change there about how people are perceived and their contribution to work and that really came through in some of the interviews and some of the conversations we had with members and civil servants gosh was it a sort of institutionalized issue or was it just that there inevitably i suppose there are some people in supervisory grades in all grades some people who, who get it and some people who kind of don't get it quite yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the big things we heard, actually, was that it was really hit and miss. So you could have a really good line manager who really understood that, yes, you were going to leave at three o'clock to pick up your kids, but you would be able to deliver the work that you need to deliver. You could do that flexibly and you could add actually a contribution because you can work in that, you know, really agile and flexible way. But you could then move to another role where a line manager just did not understand how you worked as an individual and, and what your contribution was. Yeah, it's a kind of irony isn't it that 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 agile working that the uh, the people doing the work could be as agile as anything but the people um <laughs> overseeing it can sometimes perhaps not be quite as agile uh, I, I guess were there you, you said this this was an, an issue very close to the heart of your your women members but were there any male um comparators if you like were there any men who were able to say look it is possible to to break the glass ceiling that exists for women 
and still and still deliver and almost help create space for that thinking to develop yeah I I think it was really important for us that while we were partnering with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership this wasn't a piece of research that was solely aimed at our women members you know this is something that affects everyone and actually for me when I think about my relationship with flexible working I think about you know what if you were an author and the best time for you to write was three o'clock in the afternoon there is absolutely no harm in you going to work at seven o'clock in the morning to be able to finish at three and and use your creative time in the way that you want to you know if you're still delivering work it doesn't really matter what your excuse is I don't think you need to have an excuse to work flexibly but we definitely saw from, from some of our, our men in our union you know they were they were saying we're trying to lead the way but often it can look quite tokenistic so you get the yeah. you know, the chief exec who pointedly says on the 22nd of December I'm going to go and leave early and see so-and-so's school play but actually that's one example in a whole year um, and it doesn't quite go far enough so I think there's definitely something in there and it's not just about you know, we did a we did some research about what the myths were, and there was always yeah. this perception that flexible working is a women's issue, um, and it's a women with children's issue. But I know from my experience, I have worked flexibly in the in the past to manage anxiety because I couldn't travel in peak hours because I was mm-hmm. in a bad state for that. But actually, the flexibility my employer gave me to be able to come in a bit later or come in a bit earlier actually meant I was able to carry on doing my job as well. And I think that's the really key thing here. Yes, yes, indeed. And I mean, even if you even if you get round the presumption that a main driver for flexible working from women is childcare issues, even if you assume, as was the case with me, that I had primary childcare responsibilities when my kids were smaller, just because I work closer to where they were, they were at school or, or in childcare. Even if you get round that, you've still got issues about a, a, a flexible working culture that transcends demographics. Um, the, the, the notion that was in the original, port, uh, the original report of having a flexible working passport, uh, as it were, and a, a proper bespoke evaluation, did that, did that gain traction uh, with both the members and the employer? Yeah, it really did. And I think when we look at the recommendation, they, they were the two most popular, you know, around the recommendation of having this flexible working passport. And I, I really like the idea of that because we have in the civil service, we have reasonable adjustment passports that you can take with you to different roles. So within the civil service, there are so many jobs that you could possibly do that it makes sense for you to move from DWP to the home office and then move MPJ. Um, but if you have to renegotiate your reasonable adjustments every time you do that it becomes quite onerous and it can be a barrier to your progression so one of the proposals we had was this this flexible working passport where you have something that says look this is how I work my hours and this is how I deliver and you're able to do that so it doesn't it means you're not reliant on those good managers anymore there's a standard across the civil service that they said yes we adopt this flexible working approach so the flexible working passport was something that that we spoke to employers about and we had some really good engagement with them we were also working with gender and change which is an organization that works with pregnant from pregnant and screwed and also another organization called capability jane to put together some training as to what that would look like and then obviously um, the pandemic started. Yes, <laughs> it, it, indeed. I mean, the, the, the ultimate stress test for flexible working, I, I guess. Um, has it had in, in some ways what you might call a, I don't know, a silver lining in the sense that localised or personalised resistance to flexible working has just, has just been knocked out of the way by the practical necessity of, of keeping the civil service going, but at the same time making sure civil servants can work effectively and safely I, I think it's going to be really interesting I think immediately there was a really 
the civil service moved quite quickly to ensure that their staff could work from home and they were they were very capable in terms of resources and making sure people had the right equipment and, and that was really positive to see but I think for us as a union our membership is so broad we've got sort of tax professionals to prosecutors if you think about the prosecutors and our staff who work in the court service um, and the reintroduction potentially of, of trials that's something we're working on at the moment to make sure people are safe there so so there's there, there was a lot of flexibility and I think if you think about the the sort of policy jobs that the civil servants do then yes there's some really good things we can take away from there but I think there's there needs to be consideration given to those people that actually yes they do need to to turn up to work to do their job and I think there's a balance there but um I'm quite interested to see how some of that resistance initially to flexible working is going to be taken forward because the civil service in general were pushing people to work from home a couple of days a week if they could um perhaps more from an estates and a cost saving perspective than from a flexible working perspective um, and that's actually one of the conversations we had quite a lot was how you can those two are kind of jarring because it's either flexible working because you think that's a good thing for people to have or it's an estate strategy and combining the two can be a little bit confusing i think um, but it'll be interesting to just see how that that works in practice and whether when this is all over um people move back to working in Whitehall in offices five days a week I'd be quite surprised if that does happen yes I mean there, there's the potential for all sorts of change both both good and, and bad depending on your, your your perspective it must be a very difficult time for your members though in the sense that that they are the key workers in in kind of a different way to say firefighters or, uh, or or NHS staff even though of course you do have many uh, senior managers in the NHS in your membership um, but what what how's it been I mean you know how have they coped it must be enormously balancing the stress of, work, uh, of working in strange environments the pressure of making policy in an unprecedented situation and advising ministers uh, appropriately just I mean, your, I mean, your work, your own workload must have gone through the roof, let alone those of that your members. Yeah, it's been an interesting time, I think. But I think if we were to be having this conversation a year ago, we would be talking about the unprecedented challenge that was coming our way around a no deal Brexit. And our members were delivering that at pace and at difficult times with um, a lack of political decision making at times for that as well. Um, and I think I think really it, the last sort of 18 months have just been a you know a beacon about what the civil service offers because they have been unwavering and our members day to day have been unwavering in what they deliver and um, I think we have navigated the, the no deal Brexit scenario to then be faced with something which in my view is much much bigger um, and has a, such a huge impact on, on everyone in the country um, and yet they are still you know just unwaveringly professional and dedicated so I think yes you're right you know some of my my personal casework has gone up and there's been um, a lot of time spent investigating how we navigate this as different separate employers but actually our members are just delivering because it's what they do you know and these are some of the best and brightest people in the country so actually I feel as I did with no deal Brexit I feel quite confident in our ability to have to come through this because civil servants and experts you know we're FDA are definitely not sick of experts because our members are you know providing that expert voice right now um but like you said yeah there are challenges people are working from home they're looking after children they are worried about loved ones and you know and, and some of our members are, are unwell as well you know so 
we're navigating all of this, but you just look back and you think, gosh, these guys are, oh, you know, the creme de la creme. It makes you proud, actually, of our civil service, I think, right now. Has one byproduct of this been that some of the friction that was that was uh, obvious and commented on by your general secretary Dave Penman between between ministers and politicians and your annual members has that has that been smoothed over because there is clearly a national crisis that needs to be managed? I think I think yeah. I mean, Dave has been quite vocal about the, the challenges and the criticism the civil service has faced in the last couple of years, and it really you know everything is unprecedented at the moment. But 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 some of that that, that our members were facing was really just um, yeah. It, it's the first time we've ever seen anything like that. So I, I think I think it has. It's perhaps on ice, but I think there is always potential where there are political decisions that are being made for for that to diffuse the edges of what an impartial civil service should be doing and, and is doing and there is no question about the impartiality of our civil service right now but I think sometimes it can be conflated with political decisions that are made in, in a very different way so I think it's on ice and I, I think that's positive because I think the civil servants just need the space to be able to get on with their jobs but I think you know, as a union we will keep an eye on that because you know it's not it, it's not unfathomable to see that those sorts of criticisms could come up again um, based on a political decision that has it's been unpopular and unfavourable. In, indeed, indeed. Are, are there particular things that the union has found effective in engaging with members during this, this difficult period? I, I mean, I say that in a, in a kind of a knowing way because uh, because I saw some fantastic figures for some of the webinars that the union's been running with my, my good friend Katie Driver, who runs the Thinking Alliance Consultancy, pulling in about 500 members for, for, for webinars about, about good mental health, I suppose you could describe it during the crisis. I mean, 500 members for a, for a union of 18,000 is, is a very significant audience. I think a lot of the credit goes to Katie actually because those those um, webinars have been fantastic. Um, we moved really quickly, and I think Neil and Rachel and the team from FEA Learn who have put those out have been fantastic. Um, they yeah they really they took the sense of where members were really quickly and what they wanted, and and we just we got it out there. And I think it's it's one of those things. Sometimes unions can be slow and 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 uh, have this reputation for being a bit old fashioned, but actually for the FDA, we just yeah we delivered what we needed to to deliver. I think there are challenges in other areas. I think as most unions are finding at the moment about engaging with members and doing that in a way that makes sense for members. And I think there was a there was a bit of a transition period. I think where we all found our feet and and now we're a bit more in the groove and you know within our local branches and our you know different sections of activists those conversations are starting to happen again you know as we move to this new normal and the issues around the pandemic will obviously become you know they'll always be at the forefront of our of our thinking at the moment but there's business as usual and there's things that our members are passionate about that they want their union to be to be getting on with as well yeah so if, if i mean it's quite difficult to see beyond beyond the crisis uh, at, at the current time but if if we could roll forward to when the crisis has passed uh, and perhaps we've got back to some sort of of normality are there particular things that have been developed to meet the challenge now that you would think would still be in the mix when we get to the other side of this I think as a union, there, there's some lessons we can learn out of this around how we engage with members. Those webinars, I don't think any of us were anticipating them being as popular as they have been. And it's been, it's been slamming really. But I think when we move from doing 
um, sessions with with employers where you do you know less than 20 people in a room and um, based on capacity you have to start thinking about actually how do you spread that message and, and can you do it in a more effective way so I think that's definitely a lesson for the union to take forward I think in terms of employers there will be a question about you know the use of estates and I think I hope there'll be a reassessment that yes we can all work remotely and that can be really positive not just for our own work-life balance but also for you know I think about the work I do and sometimes I really just like to have a day at home to just get some back thinking and that strategy done um but also for for the employer the time that we do have together um I think about my colleagues at the FDA and I'm looking forward to being face to face with them in, in our fancy new building that we're now not using um, but in that conference suite and, and all getting together and having a good chat but actually I think we'll all value that time much more um, and I think we'll do it in a slightly different way and I think employers will be exactly the same. Great well Victoria thank you very much for spending time uh, with the Union Jews podcast. Uh, good luck during the uh, during this difficult uh, uh, period of time, and and I think I think we're all grateful for the work that you do, making sure your members can kind of look after look after us. So thanks very much, and uh, see you on the other side. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Thanks. Take care. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it was a great discussion. I thought really uh, gives an insight into the workings of uh, the senior levels of the civil service and the particular stresses and strains, particularly at the moment that they're having to deal with and that the FDA deals with so well on on their behalf. Also, very interesting end point to the discussion. I think what is it? What new tools that unions have developed to deal with COVID will and can be used? Once the crisis has passed, that's uh, that's scope for a whole new academic research, whole new series of podcasts, I'm sure. But I think that's the, the message Victoria leaves us with. Now, if you want to follow up any of the issues, the campaigns, the services, the surveys that Victoria mentioned during that discussion, you can find the links to all of them in the companion blog to this podcast. You can find that blog post at www.makesyouthink.com. And if you've got any ideas... If you've got any reaction, if you agree, you disagree, you want to, you've got a comment to make, we'd love you to be part of the discussion on this. Please email me at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. Coming up on the podcast, we have the TC's national organiser, Carl Roper, talking about the third successive year of positive movement in union members, uh, as recorded by the statistics. Uh, but before that, we've got news from the Labour Research Department, we've got news from the Law Commission, and we've got news about looming job losses and what that means for the TUC's campaign for a better recovery. First up, uh, Labour Research Department. Now, the Labour Research Department have surveyed union reps, probably the first survey of this group since the COVID crisis hit us. 500 reps from 22 unions responded to their survey. Very interesting insights into what colleagues in various unions have been doing. Two-thirds of those reps surveyed said they were representing members in workplaces where furlough had taken place, uh, most of them said that they'd been able to negotiate the payments to those workers up from the government paid 80% to 100% of their normal earnings. In terms of the other things that reps have uh, been preoccupied with, personal protective equipment, 73% of those surveyed said they'd had to deal with PPE issues, 65% had had to deal with issues about physical distancing at work, and 59% had had to deal with mental health and mental well-being issues. And what was encouraging is that most reps were saying that employers were responsive to the concerns that uh, they were relaying on behalf of their members. But 28% of those surveyed said they thought there'd been inadequate consultation by employers into changes that COVID had forced upon the workplace. 
Now, these are just interim results from the survey, which is still open for submissions. And Misha Nehru from the Labour Research Department told me more about why the report was running, what the objective was, and most importantly of all, how people can still participate. Okay, well, this survey is actually about addressing the vital work that trade union reps, shop stewards and safety reps, all kinds of reps have been doing during this coronavirus crisis. Many of them have been at the sharp end of all kinds of workplace issues from health and safety to the furlough job retention scheme issues with working from home and now as the restrictions on of, of the lockdown and, and the working conditions are changing again there will be a whole host of new issues that they're facing so what this survey is really trying to do is to focus down on the specifics of the union reps role you know how have they faced these challenges how has it affected their ability to carry out their day-to-day duties and what wins they have and and best practice they have that they can share to other reps across the movement. Now, I think I'm right in saying that actually there is nothing like this out there at the moment. There's no other survey of this very important group of of the labour market and of the the, the trade union movement. Is Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, that's our understanding. I think there's a, there's a lot of attempts to try and see just uh, what is going on out there, but none have specifically shown the impact, the, the positive impact, actually, that, that trade union reps are having for many thousands of their members by dealing head on with the, with the challenges that they're facing in their workplace. And how long is the survey open for? When's the closing date for submissions? So as you said, we've already featured some of our preliminary findings in this month's issue of uh, Workplace Report from the Labour Research Department. And we will be featuring the next uh, tranche of findings later on this month. So we've got about a week and a half, I would say, to, to continue to take part in this survey. And what we're hoping by keeping it open is we'll see the kind of changing situation as it's happening because as we know it's a situation that's moving very quickly and changing by the day. It, it is indeed and, and if people if people listening to this want to participate how can they go about doing so? Okay so the best place at the moment to find the survey is by accessing our Uh, Facebook page so you go to Facebook and type in labour research department and then there is a post pinned to the top of that Facebook page with the link to the survey so it's an open link and and it would be fantastic if any reps out there would would spare us some time to 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 fill that in because what we're trying to do is actually share their wonderful knowledge across the the movement better understand the issues they're they're facing and and to give them some much needed recognition for the work that they're doing that would be great thanks very much and and will you come back and have a chat with us once the final results are in yeah would love to that's lovely misha thank you very much for joining us okay thank you simon now if you've been any way active on social media over the last week or so you can hardly fail to have noticed the campaign that's gone off the ground in protest at british airways plans to essentially fire its entire UK workforce, about 40,000 people, and then take back those who they want to keep, but on reduced terms and conditions. It caused an absolute outcry. I think about a quarter of a million people have signed a petition calling on the company to rethink its ideas. It's not, unfortunately, the only job loss calamity that we're seeing at the moment. 
the construction vehicle company JCB, ferry company P&O, SSE Energy Services. All of these places have announced job reductions. The list is growing, unfortunately, longer and longer. And what people have pointed out is that in many of these cases, the news about restructuring or job losses or using COVID as the, the prompt, the catalyst, for this sort of activity comes hand in glove with, first of all, the company receiving one form of government grant or subsidy or another to keep them afloat during the COVID crisis. And secondly, in some cases, actually having recently paid very handsome dividends to their shareholders. It's clearly not right. It's clear that the TUC's call for a better recovery with national infrastructure projects is the only way we're going to really get the economy back on its feet without cataclysmically large numbers of of people losing their jobs and some really bad structural impacts on on the economy as a whole. If you want to sign that petition protesting about British Airways plans to dismiss all of their UK workforce, then if you Google change.org British Airways mass sackings, that will take you to the right place. Some unexpected and very welcome news now from the Law Commission. Now, the Law Commission is the body that keeps the law of England and Wales under review and recommends reforms, and it's just made a number of recommendations that support proposals to improve the resolution of employment disputes. Now, as I'm sure all listeners will be aware, the ultimate way to resolve really serious employment disputes if you're an individual uh, and there's a, a breach of contract involved or a suspected breach of contract involved is to go to an employment tribunal. Now, most tribunal cases, there's a qualifying period for which you have to be employed. That doesn't apply to all cases, discrimination cases particularly. But what the Law Commission has recommended is that if you think your contract of employment has been breached and it's so bad that you feel your only option is to leave your employment and claim uh, constructive dismissal, as it's called, you can actually do that before you leave which clearly is a is a huge advantage, a huge step forward in terms of remedying one of the big problems about constructive dismissal cases, apart, apart from the fact that they rarely succeed, is that you actually have to step outside the employment relationship to, uh, to pursue them. So that's a, a really positive point. There's a recommendation to increase the amount of damages that can be can be claimed if there's a breach of contract from 25,000 quid to 100,000, uh, although actually the TUC argues for the limit to be removed altogether. Another recommendation is the introduction of a standard time limit within which you have to submit your claim. Currently, it's 90 days. The proposal is to raise it to six months. And then the Commission is also recommending that tribunals have the discretion to extend the time limit in all cases where it is, quote, just and equitable to do so, which clearly gives much more flexibility for the employee or worker bringing the claim. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, it recommends that the Employment Tribunal should hear claims brought by all workers and not just employees. So that means it's only the genuinely self-employed that wouldn't have access to employment tribunals. The next step is for the government to consider the Law Commission proposals. Let's hope for a positive response because these changes are certainly long overdue. Last week, we got the annual breakdown of trade union membership figures, the number of people who have joined or left trade unions over the calendar year 2019, drawn from the reports that each union has to submit to the certification officer. It was good news for the union movement, 200,000 new members over a three-year period, three years successive growth. I caught up with Carl Roper, the TUC's national organiser, to ask him for his take on what the stats tell us. 
I, I think he was someone who didn't, who didn't like the trade union movements had, had struggled to argue that we're not a growing movement. You know, any, any movement that's grown by over 200,000 over three years, um, which is what the stats tell us. It was 100,000 last year, wasn't it? And um, 91,000 this year. I mean, they, you know, they're good figures. You know, we should all, you know, take some comfort in that. I think those of us who were kind of organising in trade union anoraks, though, look beneath the headlines and, and um, look at the kind of the structural um, makeup of the movement. And, you know, the big structural ch- challenges, if anything, are more profound. You know, we put, of, of that uh, 91,000 membership, 74,000 was in the public sector. I mean, there's something like 17 million non-members in the private sector and, and private sector membership only went up 17,000 in the last year. You know, I was just looking at accommodation and food services, where, where, which is obviously where a uh, mm-hmm. high proportion mm-hmm. of young people in the labour market um, work. Density in that sector is 2.3%. Wow. And there's literally only 34,000 trade union members working in the sector they call accommodation and food services, which is like, you know, obviously um, takeaways, coffee bars, hotels, you know, and... and, and we're still as a movement not really getting ourselves in, in a position to give uh, a scaled up number of young people an experience of trade union membership early in their working lives, which we all know is the key determinant of maintaining union density because all of the, you know, the, the union density amongst people who are 50 and over is 40%, but they didn't join the union in the last 10 years. They all joined the union in the twenties because they worked in unionized workplaces and have continued their membership. You know, I think, you know, the TUC's job is, present, is, to, job is to present a public face of a grown movement. And, 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 you know, we've got very robust stats that show that that's the case, but, you know, those of us who, who work in the movement professionally and have a responsibility for, you know, working with unions to develop strategies to preserve the future of the movement, you look behind the headline figures and think, well, some of the, the big challenges remain because, and, I've, you know, I, I was, this is this is coming, this is criticising the movement from a, a place of love for the movement. We haven't really got ourselves in in a place where we're, we're addressing them challenges in any significant scale. I mean, there are there are some increases, aren't there, in that target age group of the under thirties? I mean, it's only like one one and a half percentage points yeah. for the twenty five to twenty nine year olds, and we have seen that an increase in the number of women joining the movement. We've seen yeah. a number of regions. Uh, I think it's everywhere apart from Wales and Yorkshire and Humber where there is an increase, albeit modest. And the, the thing that occurs to me is that that these figures predate the COVID stuff. And mm. what every union rep I've met over or spoken to over the last two months has said to me is that people are flooding in. Any year's got more than 10,000 new members. I think, uh, is it GMB or United saying they've got 50,000 plus, plus new extra members? Smaller unions are bringing in, in percentage terms, significant numbers of new members. Should we feel better or worse about that? You don't, you'd always wish for better circumstances in which people understand and 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 become to uh, and, and come to value the relevance of trade unions, but as we know, happy workers tend not to join unions. You know, uh, you know there's always a crisis or a, an issue um, that sort of brings people towards trade unionism. So, I, I, you know, it's it, it's it's welcome that in in this time of national crisis, 
one of the ways that people have sort so of seen as, as protecting themselves and the families is to join the trade union as the TUC's kind of lead sort of policy person on organising and union membership. Th these things don't always happen by accident. You know, very sure, for sure. Any, put on a lot of members. That's because they've done something to draw in people because education is a pretty high density sector, particularly in schools. You know, I think it's the highest density sector. It's not like 48%, isn't it? That is brilliant news. My issue is, is which workers are the ones you join and are they, is it, are we just doing more? Is that more infill? Is it, is it work oh, yeah. who um, are, are in sectors or in workplaces where there's already union recognition or a decent level of density because they're aware of the union. And, and if it's that, then it's good, but it's not going to do anything to alter the structural yeah. issue as a movement. If it's more widespread and it's in some of them really low level sectors, then what we've got to do is we've got to find out where those individualised members are because then they, they've joined the union as an individual kind of act of insurance, really. Mm -hmm. What we've got to do as a movement is find out where they are, where they're working, and find ways to kind of bring some kind of a, a collective experience of trade unionism because otherwise what they'll do is they'll join the union for the period of the crisis and then they'll leave. Well, when, that's... When they, yeah. when, if they feel that the circumstances in which they're working are a bit safer and more secure. And, and it literally will be insurance. Is, is the TUC turning its attention to what it can do with its uh, affiliate unions to retain members who have joined, for whatever reason, during the COVID crisis, who may fall out of membership because of the job losses that we're likely to suffer over the next 3, 6, 12, 12 months? There are discussions going on within the TUC about how we get ready to re re react to the, the um, recession, depression, whatever, whatever it manifests itself as. I mean, I think it has been remiss of the movement, and I talk about the movement in its entirety, not just, not just affiliate unions of the TUC or the TUC as a kind of, as an organisation and a bureaucracy that we've not been able to come up as a movement so that people can transfer membership between different unions. I think in, in the way that people work now, that's something that we should have done a long time ago. Um, and I certainly think that should be on the agenda in terms of, because I, I think the fo clearly the focus of the trade union movement during the economic crisis that lots of people are saying is gonna follow the pandemic will be to protect jobs. Um, and that's right. But there does need to be an element of protecting union membership as well. And I think that is something that's probably going to be more within our gift than protecting jobs, quite frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You say to a union member, if, if we've not been able to save your job, stay in the movement. And, you know, we can actually make rules. We can come up with deferred subscriptions. We can come up with all kinds of ways that we can say to a worker who, who, who's lost a job, well, don't come out of the movement because you can still get help and support whilst you're within the movement. And I think that's something that, you know, people like me within the TUC and people like yourself and, and, and um, people in unions should really vocally call for and campaign for and lobby for, you know, in whichever way we're able to, given our different roles. Well, some really important and interesting insights from Carl, obviously very challenging uh, as well. If you want to find out more about the TUC's thinking about how 
its organising strategy could usefully and positively change. And you might want to register for the TUC's organising festival, which takes place uh, between the 9th and 11th of July, all online, of course. If you go to tuc.org.uk forward slash organise hyphen 2020, you can find out more about the event and register your interest. Well, that's just about it for this episode. Thank you so much for choosing to spend time with us. Hope you've enjoyed the last half hour or so. Hope it's made you think a little bit. If you like what you hear, then share the podcast. Rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice. Email us in if you've got an idea for something that should be on a future episode. Unionjews at makesyouthink.com. Email in as well if you've heard something that you think, oof, didn't enjoy that. We need to know. Feedback's all important. We want you to be part of the discussion. You can tweet us at Jews Union, and if you head on over to the Makes You Think website, you'll find a companion blog in which you'll find links to all the subjects and all the campaigns that we've mentioned in this episode. Before going, I just want to shout out to the key workers and frontline staff. It's absolutely fantastic, the work that they're doing to keep us safe, to keep the country going. We'll be back in a week or so's time with the next edition of the Union Jews podcast. Till then, stay safe, stay well. Maintain social distancing, take good care, and I'll see you soon. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.